Hey everybody, before we get into the show, I wanted to let you know we've got another live show coming up. We will be back at Maya Cinemas on Thursday, May 23rd for Furiosa, the latest in the Mad Max series. We are so excited for this one. Joining me to talk about it, we've got Sam Novak, Shahab Zargari, and Tony Gonzalez. A great lineup. It's going to be an awesome movie. We are so excited to talk about it. So make sure to check the show notes. There are opportunities to win tickets. You could also buy tickets. And we hope to see you there Thursday, May 23rd, 6 p.m. at Maya Cinemas for Furiosa. Welcome to another episode of Piecing It Together, the podcast where we take a look at a new movie and try to figure out what movies inspired it. And today on the show, we are talking about Noah Baumbach's White Noise, which is a 2022 Netflix film that I've been really looking forward to talking about. Uh, A lot of people didn't like this movie. I feel like there's some people who are maybe a little too attached to the book that it's based on, which is a a very beloved novel, Uh, and some people that are maybe a little too attached to the idea of what a Noah Baumbach film is, which this is very different from most of his work, Uh, but I wasn't attached to either of those things, and so I ended up loving it. Uh, We have a great conversation coming up about it and maybe some of the films that inspired it. Joining me on this episode is Alex Marcus from The Pop Break, and uh, yeah, we have a great conversation, lots of great puzzle pieces. Before we get to it, I do want to remind you, as always, to make sure you're subscribed to Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts, and of course, you can follow us on social media at PiecingPod. We also have a Facebook group, the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group, where I post all about the movies, and we got a nice little uh, community of of film lovers who all get in the conversations and argue, but in a good, fun way about uh, movies. Lots of great conversations going on in there, and uh, it's always a great time. We'd love for you to join us in there. And we have some really fun stuff planned uh, now that it's a new year, we're, we're planning a bunch of stuff that's going to be exclusive to the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces group. So come join us. We'd love to have you in there. So with that said, let's talk about White Noise. All right, we are going to talk about White Noise from Noah Bombach. And joining us is Alex Marcus, the editor from The Pop Break. Alex, how's it going? Good. How's it going? I am great. Uh, we're into a new year now. We're recording this in 2023. Is this the first one I've done this year so far? I think it is. <laughs> but I, I didn't want to let this movie slide because uh, I don't know how you feel about it. We'll get into it once we start getting into the movie. But I love this movie so much. I just think it's so ridiculous. And uh, we had kind of had you attached to this episode for a while. So I'm really happy to finally be like circling back around to talk about it. But before we get into White Noise, though, it is your first time on the podcast. Tell my listeners a little about you and what you do. Yeah. So uh, my name is Alex Marcus. I'm uh, the podcast editor for thepopbreak.com, which basically means I run that website's uh, podcast network. Um, in that capacity, I supervise a bunch of different like movies and TV show and music and wrestling podcasts that we do. And I also am the host of two uh, podcasts on that network, including TV Break, which is a monthly 
uh, TV podcast covering news and reviews, and also Bill versus the MCU, where I am not Bill, I am the co-host of that show, um, and we just completed a 11th month tour of rewatching every single movie and TV show in the MCU, and uh, now we're kicking Ooh. off our second season where we're d- diving into the Defenders verse, the Netflix uh, shows from a while ago. So our first episode is up on January, uh, talking about uh, the first season of Daredevil. So if you guys want to get a blast from the past, uh, you can listen to that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I wonder what it's going to take to get me to finally one day go back and rewatch the Marvel movies and all that stuff. Uh, it, it seems like it would take a lot, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's a massive undertaking and. <laughs> I'm sure it's fun for anybody who's into that stuff. Yeah, it was basically came about because Bill Bodkin is the editor in chief of Popric.com, and he uh, he reviews all of the Marvel TV shows as they come up on Disney Plus for his podcast, Socially Distanced, but he had only watched about a third of the Marvel movies. And I just kept Mm -hmm. saying, you got to watch all of them. You got to catch up. And he was like, yeah, 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 eventually. Finally, I was like, well, I'm in charge of the podcast. I'm greenlighting a new podcast that makes you watch all of the Marvel movies with me. And he was like, okay, I guess I have to now. And then we did that for a year. And uh, now he is almost as much of an expert as I am. (laughs) If it's on the schedule, you just can't get away from it. It's true. That's what you got to do. Yeah. Well, uh, you had requested to uh, co-host on this White Noise episode. So are you a big Noah Baumbach fan? Is that why you were looking forward to it? Yes, I am a huge Noah Baumbach fan. I am a really big fan of character studies, of prickly narcissists who most people find unlikable. That is like my favorite genre of movie. Uh, so <laughs> as, a, as a result, I obviously am a big Noah Baumbach fan. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've been really looking forward to this for a long time. And um, it was I, I feel like I'm the only person I know who has not read this book, by the way. Have you read this book? The White Noise? That was going to be my next question. No, I'm uh, not a very good reader. Uh, <laughs> just throwing that out here right now. And I have not read this. I have not read a lot of books that most people have read. Uh, but it seems like if I was to read a book, this is right up my alley. Yeah, I am not the biggest book reader either, since, as you just heard, I watch too many Marvel movies for that, I think. Uh, but sure. Yeah. Every for the last year, every time I say like, oh, there's a new Bo- no Bombback movie on Netflix about the book White Noise. Everyone that I say that to is like, oh, I read that in college. It's a good book. I'm like, OK, no one told me that they were reading it back then. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so as a result, I didn't know really what I was going to get into. But I just knew, you know, Adam Driver, uh, Greta Gerwig, Noah Bombback teaming together uh, for a prestige literary adaptation for Netflix. How is that not going to be the best movie of the year? And um, right. I guess we're going to find out um, whether we think that it is or not. <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. Uh, and I think the answer might be very uh, multi-layered. But uh, yeah, <laughs> yes. we, we'll get into what we think about the movie along the way and uh, what worked and what didn't. Let's just start dumping into puzzle pieces because I got a bunch here. Uh, what do you have for your first puzzle piece? So my first puzzle piece is Kicking and Screaming, which is one of Bombac's first films. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe it is his first film. And I think that it's very interesting to think about him making this film, White Noise, about a college professor um, set in the 80s uh, when his first movie, Kicking and Screaming, was essentially about the college class that probably uh, this guy was teaching uh, back then. Yeah, and sure. The kind of hotshot, you know, kids coming out of school, graduating and like figuring out their life. And I just thought it was really cool to think about the fact that like now Noah has kind of complete 
completed the college cycle that he is now more identifying with the uh, kind of illustrious college professor uh, than the kids that are just graduating out of school and not knowing what to do with their life yet. Sure, sure. Yeah, it, it's funny. He seems to be like, you know, s like celebrating the intellectual college thing while at the same time just poking so much fun at it. But I, I think you kind of have to like otherwise, like, where do you go with that kind of a character? Yeah, I mean, it's so over the top and satirical yeah. in a way that I think anybody who's been on a college campus, especially that type of college campus, right, with like a big sort of like literary community and a big sort of like history thing, like that very robust liberal arts college campus. Uh, yeah. I think everybody knows at least one or two professors like that, that has that kind of theatricality and that kind of like reputation of, oh, he's doing a lecture. Uh, I'm going to show up to the class even if I don't attend. And it's like, yeah. uh, and I love the idea of putting Adam Driver, you know, Kylo Ren himself um, in yeah, that sure. role. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's nothing uh, Adam Driver can't do. And I, I feel like, you know, this movie, it's so, there's so much that happens in it. And uh, he's he's occupying so many spaces. I think it'll come up through the puzzle pieces, like the different kind of archetypes from different kinds of movies that he is at different points in the movie. Um, I, I'm going to start off for my first puzzle piece. Uh, I'm going to go with David O. Russell's I Heart Huckabees um, be, okay. because I, I just think the the thing that connected to me so much with this movie is just that that existential dread that is just in every it's just oozing out of every single moment of this movie, every single character, just the the purely neurotic characters and the way that they operate in the world and the way they interact with one another and uh, the way they are just nervous and scared about absolutely everything and then everything does kind of go off these like insane impossible to predict uh deep ends and the way that they then react with those things and these characters are just so much fun to watch and that's what i love about the movie is the characters and just seeing their reactions to their worlds crumbling which their worlds crumbling is something that they just knew was going to happen from moment one which is just so funny <laughs> Yeah, I definitely that's such a great call. I didn't think of that, but that is that that is definitely a similar vibe of that sort of kind of like overly intellectualized kind of contemplation of death and morbidity and and I, honestly, I think this movie could have used a little bit of, you know, existential French philosophers just in the middle of it to spice things up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, well, instead of going in that direction, we go and this will come up again in in more of our puzzle pieces, I'm sure, but we go into this uh, almost Hollywood direction, which is so different for Bombac, but is kind of the direction that the movie takes. Yeah, it's definitely like a movie in three acts for me. Like, obviously, you could reduce a lot of movies to that, but this feels so distinct of like act one yeah. is the kind of academic suburban satire situation act two is the toxic airborne event which is like a disaster movie basically and then act three is well we'll get into it i'm sure <laughs> yeah, sure absolutely well, what do you got for your next piece so sticking with the noah bombeck influence on himself my next puzzle piece is squid in the whale because i couldn't help in those early scenes but think about the fact that the family that we're meeting here in White Noise feels like almost the direct inverse of the family from Squid and the Whale. And I feel like mm. that's got to say something about where uh, Baumbach's evolution has gone as a filmmaker and as like a kind of as a screenwriter and the types of things that he's interested in going from that uh, child of divorce to that father of divorce, as we saw with Married Story, to like creating this new sort of blended family with Greta Gerwig that he has, you know, not to get too into the personal, but it does seem like he is 
his happiest and most well-adjusted artistic self right now. And so I think it's so interesting to contrast the fact that like you have this big, robust family, lots of different pieces fitting together. Everyone knows each other. Everyone has their own dynamics, but it feels loving in a way that, you know, Squid and the Whale, uh, you feel many things, but love is is often a strained and tortured and toxic relationship in that sure. family. And you have Absolutely. those like the two poles of the mother and the father pulling the kids apart. And here, like the family, you know, we get into some family dysfunction later on, but especially in those opening scenes, it just feels like you have such a great kind of everybody feels so comfortable with each other. There's this clear love and support and just like a genuine like admiration for each other's worldviews and each other's just way of existing and, and just respect. There's so much respect happening. And that's just like. I can't think of anything more opposite than than that when it comes to what he shows as a family in Squid and the Whale. Yeah, and I I think here in in uh, White Noise, like the family, although it is it is weird and everybody is so neurotic and everybody's kind of like on you know on each other at all times they're, they're never actually like fighting or anything like that they they all like love each other as much as they're all like kind of calling each other out at every moment and questioning each other's ideas and thoughts um i i'm gonna jump right on top of the squid and whale with another puzzle piece that deals with another messed up family and that is wes <laughs> anderson's the royal tenenbaums which sure. i think goes right along with some of these same things with uh with the squid and the whale and just this this weird family that just seems like nothing works but it all kind of does when it all kind of comes together and and uh even though even though they all have their own squabbles and their own issues uh they're, they're a family and they stick together in the long run and uh it's it's so much fun you know again like talking about what we've been talking about just to see see these weird people all kind of interacting with each other and they all have just such lived in uh histories between each other like you can you totally know what the story is between each sister between the sisters and the brother between the mother and daughters between son and, and father every single one of these little pairings they all just feel like even if it's stuff you haven't seen on screen you kind of get and know everything that the this family has been up to in the years leading up to this moment and uh it's just so richly put together uh it, it's a big part of what i liked about it and a big part of what makes the royal tenenbaums work so well yeah and i, I think that's a great call because that is similarly a family that is really complicated in their interpersonal relationships and large there's so many characters that you have to track but when you finish watching the movie you really feel like you have a good handle on who everyone is and all of the different relationships with each other and the fact that they really are a family like you said at the end of the day yeah absolutely well let's go on to your next piece what do you have next Okay, so the next one is a little bit academic as it goes along with our academics who are its center stage of the film. Um, and that is Triumph of the Wills, which is the, you know, Lenny Riefenstahl uh, propaganda film uh, from okay. Nazi Germany. <laughs> because <laughs> this film is obviously at its heart obsessed with the sort of, you know, power of the crowd, right? And we get a lot of that, what we, we get a lot of exploration of that idea in speeches early on in the film, like when, when obviously Adam Driver is a Hitler studies expert. So he's talking a lot about the charisma of Hitler and his, you know, what he could do to how he could put a crowd in his thrall. And then of course we see him use Hitler as an opportunity, like as a vehicle to put his own crowd into a thrall, right? And kind sure. of like in a 
what can only be described as the nerdiest like rap battle that you've ever seen basically <laughs> when yes. he and, and, and Dodge Eatle are having dueling uh academic lectures about different iconoclastic people and culture like Hitler versus Elvis it's just like wild um and then you know obviously in the second half in that second piece of the film you see the crowds and the chaos of the crowds and the way that people with charisma and with ability to command the crowd can do and the damage that that can wrought. And I feel like that's, I mean, we have no better um, artifact of film the, to display that than that uh, that film, Triumph of Wills, which yeah. I did watch in college uh, for a class. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think it's it's funny. Like if you look at this movie in any way as a COVID allegory, because I think it can be read in that way, even though, of course, the book existed long before anything that we went through in the last few years. Um, just all the stuff about how unprepared the world is to deal with anything, um, you know, kind of kind of speaks to that, like, you know, we're not calling any of that uh, power of the crowd good necessarily, but <laughs> at least they could get together behind a, a common cause. And uh, we certainly couldn't uh, in this country, that's for sure. But um, I, I just think it's funny that I always put the puzzle pieces as uh, tags on my my posts for this podcast. And <laughs> now if anybody searches for SEO for Triumph of the Will, they're going to find my podcast. That's well, lovely. I don't I don't know how I feel <laughs> yeah. about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> It's a movie oh, about Hitler studies. You got there's no way he didn't do like you know a month on just that documentary alone. So oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It's such it's such a weird character trait. And going into this movie, that's like literally the only thing I knew about uh, about it at all is like Adam Driver is a hist uh, a Hitler studies professor and something happens like that was like all I knew about white noise because like I said I wasn't familiar with the book or anything so uh yeah it's a it's a really interesting character to uh yeah. to create this movie around I don't think I even knew that much I, I just knew I knew that there was some sort of big uh apocalyptic like event that people were very curious to see how Noah Baumbach would direct because that's outside right. of his comfort zone and that's basically it that's all I knew about it so wow. that the, there you go the the real like deep dive into Hitler was something unexpected. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know what? Speaking of that big giant event that happens, let's go with some Spielberg for the next puzzle piece here. Um, yeah. You know, you can kind of go with, you know, the alien invasion stuff of Close Encounters or War of the Worlds. Uh, you can go with even the IP heavy references of a Ready Player One for everything that's happening in like the grocery store and like, you know, stuff <laughs> on the TV and things like that. Um, and then you can go with like, really, we could combine in here anything that is heavily inspired by the disaster movies of Spielberg. Like you can go to 90s disaster movies like Independence Day and all those Roland Emmerich stuff. So, I mean, you can really go with any of these just big time blockbuster disaster type movies because we do get all of the little tropes. You get the 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 people uh, evacuating town in their cars. You get everybody like looking out their windows. You get uh, them like uh, racing out of the driveway and and smashing into the the trash can as as they're back in their car up. Like all these little little bits and pieces of disaster movies are all there. And it's such a weird lane to see Noah Baumbach uh, make a film in. It's not something you would have ever really expected from him, at least I don't think so. 
Yeah, that's it's funny. You listed three films that I also had listed as puzzle pieces. Yeah. It's just undeniable what those influences are, right? The Close Encounters, War of the Worlds, and Independence Day. I feel like yep. I hope that people, you know, in this kind of new era of reconsidering Spielberg and his and his oeuvre now that he's kind of like made the Fablemans and and West Side Story and I feel like he's getting a little bit more of his cool back um, from at least people I know. I hope people reconsider War of the Worlds because I feel like that movie kind of landed with a thud and it was sort of stuck in the whole Tom Cruise couch jumping situation back when it was released. But I think there's a lot there that works really well. And and so much of it reminded me of, uh, well, this, so much of this movie reminded me of, of scenes from that movie. Just like the panic, the large panic of the crowds um, when Tom Cruise is running with his daughter. And then also the sort of like uneasy tension between different survivors of the situation as the crisis is unfolding and progressing. And, and also just like the, you know, the Spielberg shot of like looking up in the sky and awe. There's definitely, definitely yeah. get a, a lot of that, um, which of course, predates War of the Worlds, definitely a, more of a Close Encounters thing at first, but yeah. And then Independence Day, a movie that I, you know, I watched, that movie came out when I was, I was like in elementary school and scarred me for life. Mm-hmm. I was afraid to go in a tunnel uh, for nice. literally a decade. <laughs> but um, that it's hard to not think of, you know, those huge lines of cars trying to evacuate cities um, yeah. from Independence Day when you see what he's doing in this movie. Oh yeah, absolutely. I Independence Day came out when I was 15, which is like the perfect time to see Independence Day, I think, yeah. like cuz it's just like the coolest best movie in the entire world and uh to this day it's probably my favorite like theatrical experience. It's just uh it was so much fun that opening weekend. But, That's um, nice. I you had a better yeah. I was a scaredy cat little like 7-year-old when I watched that movie. Yeah. And I like couldn't watch Fresh Prince reruns for like years afterwards. I was so traumatized. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. nice. Oh, man. Well, uh, what do you got for your next puzzle piece? So I don't know if this counts, but I feel like the the next puzzle piece for me is uh, Twitter Spring 2020, because that's what the evacuation camp felt like to me. <laughs> you you <laughs> nice. mentioned earlier, like you feel like there is this kind of COVID like allegory going on. And obviously the book was written before before that, but it, the movie was made um, in, the, in the aftermath of that. So it's it's hard to not think that there's influence there but I just when they go to that first evacuation camp like at the at the sort of like um I guess it was like the daisy camp or whatever it was called it's just a mass of people everyone is spreading rumors everyone is panicked everybody is like just searching and then there's one guy who happens to be our lead character's son who has anointed himself an expert and everyone is gathered (laughs) around him just because he seems like he knows what he's talking about and i was like wow that really really takes me back (laughs) yeah yeah i love it i love it so much and i i actually rewatched it today um i i don't usually uh watch a movie a second time but like we discussed uh, i had had seen this like a couple months ago already or uh, over a month ago but um I rewatched it today and that whole sequence is so funny. It's like, it really does perfectly mirror just how dumb like everything (laughs) was in 2020. And uh, yeah, I think, I think it's great to bring that up as a puzzle piece. Just the, the amount of misinformation and uh, self-proclaimed experts and uh, it's ridiculous. And it's so funny that this book was written so long ago um, and just, perfectly predicted that this is how things could go down people just don't change i think is what we learned from that experience and also like 
there's also the fact of like the whole set piece of them at the house as they hear about the event, right? And they're cons and it, like the way in which their acceptable normal just shifts and shifts and shifts over the course of the yeah. conversation until they have to flee their home is just that really, really took me back because to, to the COVID times when it's just like, you know, you're sitting there and you're hearing news about like, oh, there's this new virus in China, but oh, it'll probably be fine. These things happen. It never ends up being more of a big, uh, that big of a deal. They lock it down early, be fine. Okay. Then it's yeah. like, oh, well, it's bad there, but it's all the way over there. It's not going to come to us. It'll be nothing to worry about. Then it's like, okay, well, it's starting to come here, but we will be fine, right? It's like, it's we, we'll just, it'll have, it'll be a little inconvenient for a little while, but we'll be okay as long as we, and then it's like full-blown panic. Oh no, we should have been out of here 20 minutes ago. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it, that's exact arc that I think a lot of people uh, who thought they knew better and were smarter than the people who were panicking um, experienced yeah. uh, a couple years ago. <laughs> so funny adam driver just constantly just trying to assure his family that it's all going to be fine it's not going to affect us is just it's just a perfect example of that and uh it's so funny um i'll go for another puzzle piece uh which it might be a, a weird one but i was thinking of jim jarmus's the dead don't die which uh is a, a very like bizarre lackadaisical indie like mumblecore take on the zombie genre and whereas this is that for disaster movies in a way it's, you know, they both obviously have Adam driver in there, uh, but everybody's just kind of complete lack of uh, fear or, or their, their lack of understanding necessarily of, 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 you know, the stakes of what's happening around them. They're just kind of going about their, their business. And at, at points they do start to freak out, but for the most part, they're just like, going through it and just existing and they're just they're so muted and uh the personas are just so ridiculous and to like put those kind of characters in that case in a zombie movie in this case in a disaster movie uh it, it's such a such a weird kind of blending of tones yeah i i have not seen that film so i can't comment on it directly but that is a very compelling case <laughs> <laughs> right on yeah it, it's a weird one and i know a lot of people didn't like it just like a lot of people didn't like this movie so you yes. know go figure so that's true you know. but uh, you got to respect the fact that adam driver who is you know he is the one of the main characters of the most recent star wars franchise right he is incredibly powerful in hollywood as far as stars these days can be and he's so willing to just go with like to sign up with interesting authors and make weird projects and that obviously are at least partially being made because he's willing to put his name on it and i think yeah. that well you know some of them don't hit but more of them hit than than miss and that's that's a great that's what we want from you know modern day stars as far as we have yeah. them and i think that's really we're lucky that he has that sort of creative impulse and wants to be taken seriously yeah absolutely couldn't agree more uh what do you have for your next piece so my next, well, so before I get to my next piece, uh, like I put all these in chronological order as the film developed. And there there was a note that I wrote down that isn't really related to a piece, but I just had to say, which was the funniest moment in the whole movie for me, was mm -hmm. during the monologue that Greta Gerwig has explained in the third act, explaining her transgression and, and the situation that she's in, which is very harrowing and very emotionally complex. Um, she has, for people who haven't watched the film, she... And he talks about the fact that 
she signed up for this study to be to basically for what would become an antidepressant pill, but before antidepressants existed, I guess is how we're meant to take it. Um, and then she and she starts talking to a number of different people, but for the sake of the conversation, she's just going to say they're all Miss, Mr. Gray, and it's composite of three or more people. And then down the line, she goes and she tells this story, and she eventually gets to the point where she offers up herself, her physically to Mr. Gray in order to kind of continue getting access to the medication. Um, mm. And Adam Driver just stops her and says, how do you offer your body to a composite of three or more people? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and given like how tense that scene was and like how emotional, that was just like the perfect way to kind of break the tension in a way that was like, it, it was just perfect. And it really made me laugh so hard. And I'm curious, like if you have a moment in this movie that really made you laugh. I mean, I, I'll actually tell you, I do have my, my favorite line of the movie. Um, uh, so th there's a bunch of scenes that like I, I really laughed out loud at, but I think my biggest laugh of the whole movie is when they are uh, driving away from all the action and, and they're, they're escaping in the car. And Adam Driver says, I have a feeling this Land Rover knows how to stay alive. Um, <laughs> I, I just found that so funny. And it, it's seriously something I would say to my wife if we were driving away from like a big disaster and like trying to not die. You know, I feel like I would say that exact thing. Yeah. And I love that, like the way that he deduces that is by seeing that they basically have all of the cultural markers that would make them be like unacceptable social partners yes. for them. Right. Oh, yeah. Suddenly that has, that <laughs> takes on the meaning of like, oh, my God, they're survivors. They'll be able to get through it. It just says so much <laughs> about him. And it's so relatable. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so many funny lines in this. What's another puzzle piece that you have? You know, it. I could easily bring this up in so many things with neurotic characters, but I'm going to go with Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche, New York, um, which, again, deals with the, these characters that are just so, like, cripplingly scared of death and just to the point where they just are unsure of what's even going around, going on around them. And, of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just incredible in this movie. And, uh, you know, he he plays this uh, this uh, playwright who's who's trying to stage a play of everything of all human experience and in the process is creating a re repeat copy of himself staging the play because of course it has to have everything in it and reality starts to blur into the fiction and i i feel like a lot of what's happening within white noise where we're talking about these uh you know these characters who are going through the, this this airborne toxic event and they're escaping and things start to kind of feel like movies for the characters in the movie and i i feel like you get a lot of that kind of meta-ness even though it's not about Bombac, it's not necessarily about the author of the original book but you're getting these like layers of the real world blending with the things that are happening for these characters in this fictionalized world and nobody really knowing what to trust as far as like their own imaginations and their own fears and uh, everything that they're scared of most of all of course being death and so I, I think that these two characters really, uh, especially the Adam Driver character, uh, you know, share a lot with with what's going on with Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, I think that's a good call. I love Charlie Kaufman's work. It's he speaks very, uh, very specifically to me. Sometimes it feels like, um, but yeah. I will say that it it was a nice it was nice to me that white in White Noise, Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig were both kind of dealing with depression in different ways there was at least like more layers of you know like they like they themselves are deeply afraid of death 
and obsessed with mm -hmm. it, but they like genuinely love and support their partner who is also deeply afraid of death. I feel like sure. <laughs> like Charlie Kaufman movies can be so myop myopic sometimes in their personal obsession with uh, sure. their emotions. And I think that's connected to New York, which is one of my favorite films is like the most example of that, right? Where he's yes. just like, it's like maybe none of it is happening outside of his head. Maybe the entire world is just his own creation or maybe he's just such an insane narcissist that he has to do what he literally does in the movie, which is create an entire artificial version of the world just so he could be in control of it. And then even, and then he's a self-hating narcissist, of course, so he gets recast in his own part. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. And the layers to which, like, this character just kind of destroys himself in the process is just, you know, it, it's perfect. And here in White Noise, we get a much happier ending. So, you know, it's, uh, it kind of yes, ends different. I think the difference there is that, like, Adam Driver and Greta Gerwig genuinely love each other. And there's a yes. connection there that saves them from from falling to into the abyss and that Charlie Kaufman, you know, bless his soul. I don't think he's ever experienced that. He wants it so desperately, <laughs> yes. but I don't think he's ever quite gotten there with the partner. <laughs> yeah, that, that would make sense. Absolutely. Well, uh, what do you got next? Well, speaking of uh, not being able to get there uh, from with your partner, um, I'm going to talk about Lost Daughter, The Lost Daughter, which is a Maggie Gyllenhaal film from last year, which was mm -hmm. my favorite film from last year. Because as I said, I love character portraits of narcissists. Um, so <laughs> that was yeah. a, a great entry into that canon. Um, and I'm bringing it up here because, you know, I couldn't help but think about Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, who play the same character in that film, um, their journey through motherhood and depression and social expectations and partner expectations and all of the kind of things that that film touches on. Uh, or really dives deep into, and the, you know, the Greta Gerwig character here, Babette, what she is going mm -hmm. through, and the kind of idea that, like, she really does genuinely love her partner, and she loves her children, and she loves her family, but she's also clinically depressed, and she doesn't know how yeah. to make sense of that in a world that doesn't have language for it yet, really, and I found that, you know, I would have loved to see if these two women could have met up with each other uh, and, you know, just gotten away from their commitments and responsibilities and just shared their feelings every once in a while if maybe their lives wouldn't have blown up in such dramatic yeah. ways, you know? Yeah, maybe uh, been, been a positive influence on one another, possibly. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Lost Daughter is great, and uh, I, I think that's a great point, and uh, yeah, great puzzle piece to bring up. I'll take it we, we have two back-to-back -back pretty heavy movies for uh, for puzzle pieces there. So I'm going to go with the National Lampoon Vacation movies. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> once, we, uh, once we get to the Airborne Toxic event, and obviously we're jumping around the movie a lot here, but um, when, once we get to the Airborne Toxic event and they are escaping, you know, I said that Adam Driver kind of starts to inhabit various different kind of archetypal, you know, movie characters. And here he becomes kind of, the doofus dad in a lot of ways and uh he's pushing forward even in the face of this you know gigantic situation that's happening but he definitely feels especially because he's behind the wheel and you know that kind of is a a perfect setup for for this comparison feels like chevy chase driving his family and everybody just you know just talking and and making fun of him at the same time yeah it definitely feels like and i mean Again, I didn't read the book, and so I couldn't say for sure, but it seems like the Adam Driver character is kind of ripping off of that patriarchal archetype from the 80s, right? It's set in the 80s very specifically, and it just feels like that was this whole 
genre of characters that we got in media, both on sitcoms and in movies like the Chevy Chase one that you're talking about. And and yeah, it's it's interesting to see how Adam Driver mirrors that in certain ways and how he kind of subverts that in other ways with his performance. Yeah, absolutely. And it, the movie takes it takes him through so many different tones, like whether he's, you know, intellectual or goofy or action packed, like it, it's all over the place, really. Yeah. And I think kind of sometimes all in one scene, like in that lecture scene, yeah. which actually brings me to another puzzle piece that I wanted to mention earlier, mm-hmm. which is Tar, which is obviously not a direct influence on this film because they were made at the same time. <laughs> but sure. while watching it, I couldn't help but contrast the Adam Driver lecture scene with the Lydia Tar lecture scene when she goes to Juilliard um, and kind of just plays that crowd like a fiddle and tries. To, and that it's one of the best scenes in that whole film because what Kate Blanchett does as Lydia Tar is just pull out all the stops to try to seduce this, the crowd in general, right, that she's teaching the class to, but the one student in particular who is objecting to her, she really tries to seduce her over to his side, to her side of things. And she does it in a way that just slowly reveals every layer of her personality. Just, it's so well-crafted where like you start out by showing off the fact that like she's incredibly charismatic and she can be kind of like loose with the, with the content that's like very dense and academic because she's like so fun and just like, I can relate to you. We can all talk about this in a loose way. And then when he rejects her on that level, then she like really tries to zero in on him specifically and is like, well, let me impress you with all of my knowledge and my expertise and how charming I am when I deliver it. Mm. And when that doesn't work, then she gets mean and she starts attacking him and his opinions and gets the whole, tries to get the whole class to turn on him and make him seem like he's a, a terrible, toxic person. And that she is actually, you know, the the savior of the class by having actual reason and thought and culture. Um, and I just, and that says everything that you need to know about the whole rest of the film, basically, and the way that she seduces and then dissembles people and destroys them. Sure. Um, and in this way, you know, when you look at, when you contrast that with the Adam Driver scene, in Adam Driver's case, he is so... But he starts out very small and quiet and just like, I'm just going to add something to what Don Cheadle is doing. And by the end, he has completely taken over the class with this giant bombastic crescendo of a finish where like he was almost like a vampire kind of like over like yes. hanging over the lens of the camera. And it just so and I feel like that is kind of how he works as a character in this film where he really starts out in the background kind of just commenting on things and being like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm like a clever kind of guy and I love my family. And then by the end. The movie turns into this like psychodrama where he is like the you know neo noir hero of his own story, <laughs> and yeah. there's no room for anybody else. So I think it's kind of very interesting when a film can take a set piece and make that set piece really compelling on itself, like in and of itself, but then use that to inform not just the character, but then like what the arc is going to be moving forward for the whole for the whole film. It's that's the kind of thing that I love and like great writing can do like a really well written script can pull that off in a way that you just don't see very often. Yeah, absolutely. And like Tar is so damn good, too. And like, (laughs) you know, and those characters, they're just so big, like no matter what they're doing, you just you want to watch them do what they do. And it's funny because Don Cheadle is so good in this movie, too, in in White Noise. And uh, to to see him 
going back and forth with Adam Driver, you could tell like how much fun he's having doing it. Like he seems to just like you, you really see the character come through there, and uh, just just how much that he is just enjoying having his uh, his lecture taken over by Adam Driver's character, and it, it's a really interesting dynamic between the two of them, and and they're so fun to watch. Whether it's in that scene or then once they're in the grocery store, just walking and talking, like all that stuff is just so great between the two of them. Yeah, absolutely. There's a camaraderie there that you don't see with Lydia Tarr and her colleagues. No, <laughs> to no, say the not least. at all. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, I will go. So I, I already did one piece where I combine a whole bunch of stuff. I was talking Spielberg and Emmerich and all that stuff. But I, I'm going to do another one where I'm going to combine a bunch of stuff into one piece here uh, because I wanted to talk. Okay, first of all, Yorgos Lanthimos, Killing of the Sacred Deer, The Lobster, all of these like very weird stilted dialogue type characters but also riley stearns uh this year had duel and also a couple years ago the art of self-defense both of these filmmakers i feel like get compared to each other a lot um and i feel like this movie could be compared to both of them really like the these characters they do not they do not exist in our world necessarily, <laughs> at least not in the way that they talk and the way that they interact with one another. Um, they're all just kind of always speaking and always, uh, always stating things, but not necessarily listening to each other. But then when they are listening to each other, they're, they're almost in a game with one another at all times. And, and it doesn't really resemble the way that we would normally talk to each other. And it's, it's a very interesting way to make a movie. Those two directors have really made an interesting niche out of it. And uh, again, you know, this isn't, this is yet another way that this isn't necessarily like other Bombac films. So it's interesting to see him trying something like so completely different here. Uh, but I, I think especially on the strength of these actors, it works so well. Even the young actors who are playing all the kids, uh, they're all so good that they're able to pull off this very strange style of, uh, of dialogue. Yeah, it really, it, it's funny because like you said, like Noah as a writer has such a very specific voice that you're so used to in his films. And this is definitely slightly sideways of that. Um, and yeah. you don't often see someone who is so celebrated for their writing, you know, for their screenplays, uh, willing to kind of just inhabit a different way of speaking uh, a way of like you know uh, constructing their narratives and their and their uh, dialogue but I think it it's a large part of that is his love of this book and of the mm -hmm. of the author of this book and wanting to really honor that work and I love that I love when you can you know it, you run a risk you definitely do because sometimes dialogue in a book just plays much better than it does when it actually is coming out of people's mouths right um, sure, sure. but sometimes that can be fantastic you know I mean just like a a connected puzzle piece on that same idea is, you know, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo plus Juliet, right? That is sure a, a very modern take on the, well, at least circa, you know, the mid nineties, a very modern sure, take sure. on Shakespeare, <laughs> but yeah. using that dialogue and using it and to, and giving it over to modern, uh, modern performers to try to breathe new life into it and bring, breathe, bring in a new dimension to the words on the page. And I think that that is always a really, it's always a, a tight wire act, you know, but when yeah. it works, I think it works well. And I think more often than not in this film, it works well. Absolutely. Well, I have one more piece. So uh, do you have any more pieces you wanted to bring up? 
Yeah, I have just a couple of quick ones. Um, one, well, I guess this isn't that quick. Um, <laughs> the kind of end of the movie is becomes a sort of like psychodrama that um, Adam Driver is going on this like revenge quest to confront his wife's abuser. And I couldn't help but think about Taxi Driver and the ending of Taxi Driver. Um, mm. And especially not just the, the thing about that movie that I think a lot of people miss, and I'm sure you don't because you're a very smart guy, is that that <laughs> is sort of as kind of bombastic and like glorifying as an ending that that is. It is subversive because it's like this guy is like not some he isn't the hero of his story he's kind of this is sure. his delusional fantasy right but a lot of people take the ending as as written you know on screen without any critical thinking attached to it and i think we've sure. seen the legacy of that over the years of this sort of like anti-hero who bursts into a room and like shoots up the bad guy and rescues uh the innocent victim like there's like i don't know like uh, probably about six dozen action movies from the 90s and 2000s that kind of take that inspiration and i think that the adam driver scene is such a great subversion of that trope that genre trope over time where it's yeah. like he's just so inept at what he's doing he immediately regrets it and then they end up saving him in a way that is sort of comical and sort of beautiful and sort of bizarre and i just it's so I, it feels in direct conversation with that kind of like decades of genre tropes of the anti-hero especially the kind yeah. of suburban unlikely anti-hero right the walter white type right who comes in sure. and just kind of blows everybody away yeah, absolutely. I I love like after uh, after they shoot the, the the drug dealer guy and then and then end up saving him and and he's like you know who are you two and and <laughs> Adam Driver like all I could think to say is like we're your friends like, <laughs> like he doesn't like even really know what to say at that point he's just so lost in his plan and he just doesn't even know where he's at at that point it's so yeah. funny. The other quick <laughs> one that I wanted to add before you give your last one is. So this movie ends in a giant musical number in the the supermarket, and I I immediately went to the last time that I saw uh, a Adam Driver film where people inexplicably break out into a musical number, and that is of course Annette from a couple sure. years ago, um, and the, specifically the opening of Annette, where it's basically like you know it's all of the players on the stage coming out in various contexts to ask the audience if they can start the show. And this felt kind of like the bookend of that, where it's all of the players breaking character and kind of, you know, dancing and saying, thanks for coming to our show. And I thought that was really interesting given the Adam Driver connection. But I'm curious as like a student of film, if there were other film musical numbers that came to mind in this sequence that I may have missed. Oh man, I... I wasn't thinking of any specific film musical numbers, although I'm sure there's like some really good uh, analogies you could come to. But like, I was actually thinking of music videos more than anything. Like, I was thinking of like, uh, what's the what is it, Fat Boy Slim? I think with Christopher Walken. Like, sure. Uh, yeah, I was thinking of stuff like that for that sequence, and it's such a good song, and the the you know the choreography of the whole thing is just so cool. And uh, seeing Andre 3000 get down is always great. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, it kinda, I kind of was like, I don't know why Andre 3000 was in this movie because he has like two lines of dialogue. He's just, his whole job for almost the entire thing is just to sit at a table and nod and a smile. Like, yeah. Why did you agree to do this? But then you get to the end and it's like he gets these big musical moments of dancing in the aisles and everything. I was like, well, I guess maybe this is why he signed up. I don't know. I'm glad he's here yeah. now, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that that that's great. And uh that speaks again. I mean, we've already been talking about how interesting Adam Driver's career has been lately. And uh 
he's going to be fighting dinosaurs with a laser gun in 65 in March. So I uh, can't wait to see that. So, <laughs> I still don't believe know. that's real. I'm not going to believe that's real until I am in the theaters. <laughs> so weird. So weird. Uh, my last puzzle piece is going to be Mike Judge's Idiocracy. You know, when we get to, we, we've kind of talked about it before, but like the airborne toxic event, how nobody knows what the hell to do. Uh, the the various word plays of like misinformation of like when uh, Adam Driver's character is trying to get tested to see if he maybe has been infected and uh, the guy has a computer and he's, it's unclear whether or not the computer is actually doing anything or whether the whole entire thing is a simulation and whether or not if it is a simulation, <laughs> if it's a real computer that's doing the testing. Everything is just so stupid and it's so funny. And then also all the grocery store stuff is all similarly like ridiculous, but great wordplay at the same time and everything they, they discuss. Um, it, it very much took me back to that movie and just how society breakdown is very real. And it just feels <laughs> like it's like where things are headed. We're all living on the razor's edge of society. We just, it's, it's we like so to true. delude ourselves into thinking that it's some place over there's problem, but we learn more and more every day that it's our problem right here and right now. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm going to read down our list of puzzle pieces here for the finished puzzle, and then we'll get into some closing thoughts. But we talked about Kicking and Screaming, I Heart Huckabees, The Squid and the Whale, The Royal Tenenbaums, Triumph of the Will, Spielberg movies, Roland Emmerich movies, uh, Twitter in the spring of 2020, <laughs> The Dead Don't Die. Synecdoche, New York, The Lost Daughter, National Lampoon's Vacation, Tar, Yorgos Lanthimos and Riley Stern's uh, films, Romeo and Juliet, Taxi Driver, Annette, and Idiocracy, a big, wide, long, you know, huge list of things that are like so different. But this movie, like, like we said, it like, it really does make use of that three acts to do some very different things uh, yes. along the way. So <laughs> you can see there's a lot of room for all these different influences to kind of like poke their heads in. But uh, are there any uh, closing thoughts you had? Anything we didn't quite get to while talking puzzle pieces? Uh, no, I mean, I guess that's pretty much it. I, I was curious if you were going to come up with a puzzle piece for the German nun hospital, because that to me just felt like it had to have been a reference to some random film from like, you know, 1954 or something or like a French new wave sort of thing. But I just couldn't place what was going on there. <laughs> yeah, that is a weird sequence. And I mean, obviously, it's in the book. So like, you know, it's it's got to be there. And I, I'm not quite sure. Uh, you know, influence wise, I mean, it kind of felt a little Coen Brothersy to me. Um, you know, like that, that was like the number one thing I thought of, but I didn't think of a specific influence for that scene. Uh, but yeah, it, it is such a strange scene to go out on. And, uh, <laughs> yes. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, where does this movie going to go? You know? Yeah. So, and, and where it was going to uh, go is a dance musical number in the supermarket. That's of course, once you, you get go. into the, the faithless nuns, you immediately transition into musical montage at the supermarket. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's, that's a way to go out. Uh, speaking of, of that musical number, another thing about this movie, uh, an awesome Danny Elfman score, uh, which yeah. I, I feel like just like this movie is referencing so many of these like classic movies and, and tropes of the eighties, it feels like it's almost like a greatest hits in a way of Danny Elfman film music. Like I, I felt the Simpsons in here. I felt, you know, army of darkness in here. Like I felt like all these different, uh, all these different kind of like classic movie, uh, you know, adventure type themes in here. And, uh, it's just a really fun score. I felt. 
Yeah, it's very, it's kind of, speaking of Elfman, it's kind of funny that neither of us came up with any Tim Burton references, because of course he was like the king of 80s suburban, like off-kilter explorations, which this is definitely, you know, mining similar ground, but, you know, I don't know if we're quite, maybe that's a little bit too surreal for what we're doing here in White Noise. (laughs) Yeah, sure, maybe Mars Attacks or something is the closest, (laughs) it's a little, a little further out there though, so. Yeah, yeah. we never found out what the president (laughs) thought about the, uh, about the toxic events. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm sure there's a whole world out there in this freaking movie, it's so, uh, so strange, but, uh, yeah, I, I think that does it for White Noise. I'm sure we could go on for a long time on some of the, the weird stuff in this movie, but I, I think that does it. Uh, is there another movie you watched recently you'd like to recommend to our listeners? You know what? Instead of recommending a movie, I'm going to, if it's okay, I'd like to recommend a TV show, which has a oh, Noah sure. Baumbach connection, which is the TV show Fleischman is in Trouble, uh, which is an okay. FX on Hulu series you can watch on Hulu. whole thing aired over the month of December, so it's all there you can watch all eight episodes um and it's one of the best things that i've seen all of 2022 it stars jesse eisenberg as the titular fleischman who is of course you know uh our noel Baumbach uh kind of protagonist in the squid and the whale Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like what happens when he grows up and gets divorced in a lot of ways um and uh it's this great it has a great small ensemble where uh claire danes plays his ex-wife who goes missing at the start of the show and she, and he ends up having to take care of their kids for a while and has sort of like an existential breakdown over this fact. Um, uh, and uh, it also features Adam Brody, who's really good as a sort of like uh, bachelor who never quite settled down and was friends with uh, Jess Eisenberg from college and Lizzie Kaplan, who plays their, the like third nice. piece of their friend group and who is also the narrator of the of the television show it's based off of a book uh, as i said and it's yeah it is really excellent it's a great kind of exploration of that sort of like reaching your 40s and like midlife crisis stuff which of course we is well covered ground um but, <laughs> but it also really plays with perspective in a really interesting way you end up you get really into jesse eisenberg's perspective for a while and then the narrative sort of broadens and you get to see that maybe his uh, accounting of events is a bit myopic and uh, not exactly as honest as you might think initially. And and it's really, it's a great exploration of narrative and character if you're into that sort of thing, which I think you are if you're watching a Noah Baumbach movie. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I haven't watched this. I'm, I'm really bad about series, but um, it seriously has so much about it that sounds like it would be right up my alley that I might have to make time for this one. It sounds really great. Yeah, and it's a closed-ended miniseries, so you're really just investing for the eight hours, and then you're getting out of there. And I really think that um, anybody who likes Baumbach's work would also like what this miniseries is doing. Awesome. Well, Alex, this was great. Uh, Tell people where they could find you and uh, the podcast you work with. Yeah, so you can go to thepopbreak.com and click on the podcast tab. Uh, that's going to be the way you can find all the podcasts that I produce, all the podcasts that I am uh, the editor of, all the podcasts that I host. Um, you could subscribe to Pop Break TV or Pop Break Today. Those are two different podcast feeds that I contribute to. Um, and uh, you could also follow my film podcast, Cinema Joes, which I do outside of Pop Break, uh, where we come to a, a film conversation once or twice a month. So definitely check all that stuff out. And you can follow me on uh, Letterboxd at Media Thinkings, where I have just watched my 83rd film from the year 2022. So I have a full ranked list of all of my opinions of that, uh, that the year that was. For a second there, I thought you were going to see your 83rd film of this year, and I was going to be like, what in the world? <laughs> Did you ever slow down? But uh, 
You are you are pretty busy, it sounds like. So yes, too busy, too busy. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, hopefully uh, we can get you back again on piecing it together again sometime. This was great. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, anytime. I'm Josh Bell. And I'm Jason Harrison. We co-host a podcast called Awesome Movie Year. Each season, we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. We deep dive into these specific years and we pick out why they were such great years for films. We go over the biggest hits, the biggest flops, the best picture, and some personal picks, some cult classics. Years we've covered in past seasons include 1994, 2003, 1977, and 1984, and we've got all of film history to look forward to. So check us out at awesomemovieyear.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation about white noise. Thank you to Alex Marcus for joining me on that one, and thank you to you for listening. If you're liking what you hear here on Piecing It Together, you like what we do with the puzzle pieces and all that stuff, We'd appreciate it if you made sure you're subscribed wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Maybe drop a five-star rating. That would be nice. You could also get in touch. Let us know if there's any puzzle pieces you thought of that we didn't mention here on the show, and I will read them on the next trailer episode that I do at the beginning of each month. So, yeah, I always love hearing from people. Uh, you could also, of course, follow us on social media at PiecingPod, join our Facebook group, and uh, check out the Patreon, produced by David Rosen, where I post bonus and advanced content from Piecing It Together, Awesome Movie Year, and from my music career. Speaking of my music career, I just released a new album called More Content, and that album is now out on streaming, on Spotify, on Apple Music, all that stuff. There's also a limited edition CD available on my Bandcamp. And I'm going to close this episode out by playing a song from more content. This is a song called Everything and Nothing. And uh, it's a weird one. So I thought it would be a good fit for white noise. So I hope you enjoy Everything and Nothing. And we'll be back with more Piecing It Together real soon.
an All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.